described in that way by his own people. And so we are finally at the point where David is king. And he, God has given him the leadership over all of Israel, finally. We've been waiting for that for a while. We saw that last week. And then he obtained a central capital city, formerly named Jebus, for the Jebusites that continued to remain there. David was finally able to drive them out, and it becomes the city of David there on Mount Zion. Just the historical importance of that in its future as well. It's very significant. So David's king of all Israel. He has a capital city from which to reign and live. And we're going to see in this passage, short passage this morning, he's going to continue to expand his political power and his presence in Jerusalem. He's already built a palace. We saw that. He was given what he needed from a foreign ruler, Hiram of Tyre. And yet, through all of this, God's blessings, David still knows that God's expectation for him is to rule over Israel, that he has been put there to serve and be a blessing to God's people. And that keeps him humble. That's a good thing for any of us to realize and what God's called us to do is remember that it's not about us or our ego. As God gives blessings to remember our purpose in the people that we're serving and to make sure that we are, are serving well and helping others. And so David knows this. In 2 Samuel 5.12, the verse we ended with last week, it said, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, not because David was a wonderful guy and God wanted everybody to know it. He was a good king in many ways, but the purpose of him ruling was for the sake of God's people, okay? Well, this next part here that we're going to get to in the next couple of verses, um, I know has caused angst, and some of you have, have expressed that, and it is rather troublesome here. Um, and we have to keep in mind, even as we des describe this aspect of David continuing to um, grow in his power and in his influence as king, that in what he does here in taking on these concubines and wives, David seems to, in this instance, um, be following what was considered the conventional royal expectation, and it, it followed after the political strategies of the world that made sense to a lot of people. Um, and we have these described here, these marriages. Verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamu, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon. Interestingly, those were all children of Bathsheba, who hasn't entered into the picture yet. This is kind of a summation of the names of his children. And then verse the ones in 15 and 16, we don't even know who their mothers were. They're not named here. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Leshema, Laida, and Elephlan. Fun to try to say those fast. All those names there. And what is the purpose of the author even telling us of all this? Well, well what, what, let's ask this. What was the purpose? What was the advantage that David would have in, in bringing uh, these women and marrying these different women? 
Well, from a practical aspect, it was probably, from what we can tell, politically motivated and tended to unite him advantageously with Israel's prominent families and thus with the whole nation. It was a practical way to unite the whole nation behind him. Now, they were already behind him. He didn't have to get this practical, obviously. But again, this was something that rulers at this time did. And another aspect of this, in a general sense, multiple marriages would also provide him with growth in his own family. And in uh, leaders at this time, in kings, um, the larger your family, the more powerful you were perceived to be. And it is in a general sense, back to what I was saying a minute ago, in, in a general sense in the Jewish mind and in, in Bible history at this time, a large family was a sign of God's blessing and power. Now, David hadn't gone about it the right way, but we're talking about the picture here is of David increasing in strength and God blessing him. And having more children was certainly a blessing and a fruitful increase for him. He just didn't go about it the right way. This also meant more construction projects as he brought more as his family increased and these wives, concubines, they would need more places to live. So there was this construction project probably going on in Jerusalem, building homes for his growing family. And all of that had a sense of something going on and all of this. So from again, as we look at this from a conventional wisdom point, even secular scholars that look at this and, and read what David did here, it's it, Many of them come away with, well, that's just what they did. It was expected back then. Well, there's only one problem with that. And that's that God always turns on its head conventional political wisdom. And even though this was the norm, God had already um, spoken on his warning for doing this. Even from Samuel. Remember when Samuel was warning the people about having a king? He said, uh, the king will take your daughters. And it's David that ends up fulfilling that warning of Samuel. And from the very law that God had given his people, I just turn real briefly, Deuteronomy 17, so that we know. And we can, at the same time, measure David and even Saul with what God's expectations of a king should be. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And that was the problem with Saul. Saul, in effect, was one that the people demanded. God still chose him, but the people were usurping Samuel's authority. And so really, I think this, uh, when Moses gave this to the people, the, the direct fulfillment of this was David, ultimately. So God was expecting at some point that they would have a king, but God would choose that king. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, David did, I think, well enough on that second part. Um, he obviously knew God's word well. He did a whole lot better than Saul did. He didn't seem to have much interest in God's word at all. But it's interesting, David seems to know God's law well, but I don't know that I'd say he knows it thoroughly. Otherwise, how do you miss this warning that God gave? And we're going to see um, in the next couple of weeks, in the next chapter, that David misses some other important things about God's law that bring some real trouble to Israel. And so even though overall this is a picture of God's blessing in David's life, multiple children, there still is this aspect where we understand that he's violating, he's not following after the spirit of God's law in this regard. And notice that the author doesn't say anything about God's blessing in his life when it comes to this particular aspect of what David is doing. And that's just a reminder for us, too. As much as we know God's law, never be satisfied with the amount that you know. I don't know if David was satisfied or he felt like he knew God's law well enough, but there were some important things that he missed here. He missed this warning, and he missed some aspects about worship toward God that really caused some trouble. So don't ever think that you're arrived in, in, in your lives and, and think that no matter who we are, or how old we are, or how long we've been a Christian, that we don't need to continue to study God's word and know it increasingly better. If David needed to do that and had trouble, then you can guarantee that if we're not careful, we, we may miss something important too. David missed that here. But now, if we turn to verse 17, God is going to give David some incredible victories here. In a sense, we'd like to know a whole lot more than what we find out here. We're going to see David as king, David's greatness as king, and his military successes. He was having political success, but also militarily. He, was had, he would have great success from one of Israel's all-time worst enemies ever, if I can put it that way. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. It seems word reaches the Philistines that David is now king over all of Israel. And I don't know if maybe when he was king over Judah that they thought, well, we'll see how this thing goes. Um, you know, he's obviously not king over all Israel yet. He's not that powerful. He's not that much of a worry. Maybe he'll still be on our side. But once the Philistines find out that David is now king over all Israel, now they're alarmed and they're concerned. And so they decide to move quickly to find David and to deal with him. And we see here there's still a force to be reckoned with as they spread their forces throughout this valley, which is probably just southeast of Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem, that area. And David goes to his fortress, probably this fortress that's mentioned here, this one word, probably located close by on Mount Zion as well. And you think of it, this is David's moment, right, where he can... He can incur vengeance and receive justice for the death of his best friend, Jonathan, for King Saul, and for all of Saul's sons. I mean, here's his moment. Hundreds of other soldiers 
And we would use the vernacular today. It's kind of a no-brainer that David would go after this stubbornly powerful enemy. Let's go, David. Let's do it. Just take him out. And if you think about this, even men like Gideon and, jo and Joshua uh, had um, errors in, in their um, thinking and how they operated. And they had moments where they pursued the enemy. Gideon, in particular, pursued the enemy, the Midianites, with a vengeance over the death of people in his family. And he was ruthless and cruel. Joshua, in the case of Ai, uh, pursued after the enemy without seeking God. Uh, some of God's best men have made this mistake, but David doesn't make that mistake here. David continues his obedient strategy of seeking God's will before military engagements and before the decisions that he makes. And so this would involve, as we read here, as we read that David is seeking to get God's viewpoint and wisdom, he would have gone to one of the priests. Interesting contrast, right? Saul eradicated many of the priesthood, and while David seeks the priesthood out, the priest, to find God's word for Israel. So let's continue to read there. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, again, that southeast of Jerusalem. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. God says, Certainly, I'm going to give them to you. I promise you certain victory, David. Go do it. And then we have this amazing battle at this place called Baal Terezin. And there's a reason why it's called that. We'll see that in a minute. David has a powerful victory. And it's only, the only thing is, again, it's just described in a few words. I mean, this is the moment we've been waiting for. This is where he finally has justice for, uh, again, for Saul and his best friend Jonathan and Israeli soldiers and all the, the years that the Philistines have given um, Israel trouble. You know, I, I'd like to know more about what King Achish is thinking right about now in this. You know, after, after David was on his side. And now David's coming after them. They're going into battle. I wonder if the other kings turned to Achish and said, see, we were right. What were you thinking trying to bring this guy in to help, help us fight? He's king now, and he's a real threat. We're not told anything about that. Um, but we are given the indication that there is a powerful victory here. And it's because David describes it in verse 20. David defeated them there, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And that's where you get the name Baal Perazim, as the idea of um, victory like a breaking flood going through. As I think of David's description of this, it reminded me of a book that I read. I don't know if you've ever read or heard anything about the, the famous Jonestown flood in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, it took place in the late 1800s. And I don't have time, obviously, to go into the whole story, but there were a bunch of wealthy people, Andrew Carnegie and others, who had built a resort next to a dam that was miles above several small eastern Pennsylvania towns. And uh, the, basically, the gist of it is they weren't keeping very good care of that. And eventually, because of some practices that they had, the dam burst, and literally hundreds of people were washed up taken away in the flood, and it's 
it's a fascinating story, as awful as it is at the same time, but it really gives you the idea of the power of out-of-control waters and how it can just sweep away people. And David uses that terminology for his victory. So, folks, this must have been an incredible victory. As David's saying, it's like the, the dam waters have broken in the flood, and we just eradicated them. We wiped them out. And the Philistines were so terrorized, they literally left their idols. Now it takes a lot for the Philistines to leave their false gods, and they left them there strewn along the field or whatever. And David and his men, it says, carried them away. Isn't it interesting? This is the reversal. Remember the defeat they had against Israel when Eli was in leadership and he lost his sons and then he died and they took the ark, right? Because Israel, in their panic, left the ark. Now things are reversed with David. God is working with him, and now it's time for the Philistines to lead their idols. And it's a total reversal here as God um, gives David the victory and David and his men certainly get rid of these idols. We're told in 1 Chronicles 14, actually, as a supplement here. And they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. 1 Chronicles tells us. So, of course, David burned these false gods. God gives him a wonderful victory here. But it's not over yet. I mean, these Philistines, they're not licked yet, as we would say. There's still a formidable multitude of, of warriors. They're a large group of of enemy combatants. And so they come again, verse 22. And they came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. They come back to the same valley. And David could have just said again, okay, I know God wants me to take these guys out. Let's go. But no, David's learned his lesson. And again, he inquires of the Lord. Lord, how do you want us? What do you want us to do? And the Lord said, you shall not go up. You're not going to do it the same time, the same way this time, David. But this time, go around to their rear. And come against them opposite the balsam trees. This is some sort of landmark that people knew well, a forest, some sort of forest maybe. And so God says, this time I want you to use the element of surprise by circling, coming up behind them, David. And then I am going to go before you myself in this. And he says, let's read and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the armies of the Philistines. Don't miss this picture. God is saying, I'm going to go forward in battle for you, David. The Lord himself is going to provide some sort of divine intervention in the form of a rushing wind or a great noise that will bring terror to the enemy, and then the Lord himself is literally going to lead David's troops, really as a picture here, into battle. He says, I'm going to go before you. And I wonder, I, I don't, we're not told here, but with this rushing wind, I think of those fiery chariots, remember that Elisha beheld against the enemy? And I kind of wonder, it's kind of fun to think, maybe those chariots were going before David. And the Philistines, as David comes out, they maybe they heard or they saw some indication of a Lord of hosts going before David in the battle. Whatever, it makes it clear here that the Lord is going out before David to enable him victory over the Philistines. That never happened to Saul because Saul wasn't humble enough or faithful enough for God to, to use him in that way. But God says with David, David, I'll go before you in the battle and give you the victory. 
And it says here, David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And folks, that's a 20-mile radius. This is a huge, overwhelming defeat. In fact, uh, we're going to find out later on that really the Philistines are never, although they're never totally wiped out, they're never a threat to Israel again after this. God gives David a total victory. And it had an intimidating effect upon the surrounding nations. First Chronicles tells us, And the fame of David went into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. And so we have this wonderful picture of God using David to save his people. David is a, a type of savior in this point, but the indication, of course, that the connotation is that God is going before David, enabling him. So we have a picture in the end here of David as the king that is able to provide security and safety for God's people. But as you would expect, I think we can see a picture here, folks, of David as he is providing the security for God's people. One day, there'd be another one that would come from his line, right, that would provide permanent rest and eternal security for his people. And I think there's a picture here as God is using David, a reminder that there's even a greater one than David that will come and provide rest and peace for us, security for all eternity. And this is just a small picture of that. Because even though I point that out, here's the other aspect of this, the other side of the point. David was a king after God's own heart. But as we saw in the first part of this passage, he obviously was not a perfect king, right? In his choices, in, in these marriages and things, maybe practical, but not a perfect king. But folks, he is a picture in an imperfect sense of one who would come, Jesus himself, that would be able to perfectly fulfill the role of savior and deliverer for his people. That's the thing we have to remember throughout the Old Testament, that as we look at these flawed characters, even the most faithful ones like David and Moses and Joshua and the prophets, none of these were the Messiah, were the final solution for God's people. They're pictures many times of, of, of the one that would come, but they point us to our need for somebody greater. David, with all of his victories and God's blessing upon his life, his faults still remind us he's not the final deliverer or savior. There's going to be one to come that is. His name is Jesus Christ, and he will be the son of David. And so um, David is a picture of that, but a reminder that he's not the ultimate fulfillment of that as well. A couple other things as we finish up. Seek God's wisdom in all things, as David gives us an example. And know God's word well. Don't be satisfied with a certain amount of knowledge, but seek to continue to grow in God's word so that we don't miss important things that have um, applications that have implications for how we live our lives. Continue to desire to grow in God's word. Lord, thank you for this short but powerful picture of how you use David. Even as you said that he was made king so that he could serve and he could be a blessing to your people. 
And Lord, at the same time, thank you for the reminder that there would be an ultimate fulfillment of one that would come, Jesus Christ himself, that would provide the ultimate blessing, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and will provide one day rest and eternal security in a kingdom that will last forever. And he will never disappoint us. Even like David does disappoint at times, Jesus Christ will never disappoint us. And he will rule forever. And we look forward to that day. We pray that it would come soon. In the meantime, help us to proclaim him and help us to be faithful in continuing to learn God's word and to seek your will and your wisdom for every decision that we make. Because David does give us a good example of that. Help us to remember to do that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.